Hello and welcome to Red Rose Reporting Series, Waiting for Litivation, where we go through all the political polling trends of the last two weeks and discuss the issues that have come into the headlines. Joining me as ever is Rob Clark. Hello. Connor Dockra. Hello. And joining us this week as a special panel guest is Josh Dean. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me on. Josh, do you want to just quickly just tell the audience who you are? Um, I am a long-suffering Labour Party member. Um and I'm the chair of my CLP, Hartford Stortford, and I'm standing to be um, a county councillor for Hertfordshire County Council this year as well. Very good, meaning we've actually got someone of um, electoral note on the podcast, a first. Yes, in. Only just, only just of electoral note. <laughs> uh, Connor has previously stood, George. Let's not, let's not take away <laughs> from... It's starting for the Lib Dems, it's not exactly... <laughs> uh, we actually did come above Labour, actually. They were the lowest uh, polled party. Just, uh, oh, just we're, getting, we're getting bogged down, sorry. We are getting bogged down once again. This podcast is going up to rear. Let's move straight into the first area of discussion, which is, of course, as we do every week, the polling trends. So, the polling trends of the last two weeks, well, until about half a week ago, they were just showing roughly the same thing we've seen before, roughly a four-point Conservative lead, some variations on that. But then... In the last half a week, the Conservative lead has nearly jumped up to seven points in some polls, um, opinion in YouGov having um, six and seven percent, respectively. And Boris Johnson's approval ratings are creeping towards the minuses, whilst Keir Starmer's in most polls have taken a bit of a hit, going from positive to negative for the first time during his leadership contest. So my first question to our panel is, with the polls now showing a clear Tory lead nationally, in the Scottish polls, we are seeing still seeing an ascendant SNP. And now, just this morning, a Welsh poll came out showing that Welsh Labour are back up to 39% in the constituency vote and are projected to get just one off a majority. Are we now in for a really boring and predictable election where on May the 6th, we're going to get the results that everyone just thinks we're going to get? Or is it way too early to be writing off any kind of twists and turns we might have? And uh, for this question, let's uh, turn to our newest panellist, Josh. Um, well, I think it, it, it's it's difficult to tell because I don't want to write anything off. And obviously, I don't want to write anything off because my electoral chances sort of ride on it. But, you know, we're in a position now, I think, where we are getting a vaccine boost for the Tories. Um, and that was inevitable. And we knew that was going to happen. Um, I think because the Tories had taken, you know, more of a hit through the pandemic, through the twists and the turns of things they got wrong, they will have a more precipitous rise. Um, the Labour Party obviously crept up very, very quickly from where we were, you know, in, in what would have been a normal year, I would have been surprised if we'd moved back up in the polls that quickly. Um, so now we're sort of seeing, seeing more or less what I expected to happen, where you see the Tories going back up and you see us sort of lagging behind. I don't think it's helped by what I would call Labour's struggle to lay out a vision for the country. Um, post-pandemic I think you know the policy announcements we had last week or the week before they I think they fell a little bit flat in the country um and I also think as well there is still an element of people rallying around the flag you know because of the pandemic I think when you are mid enormous crisis people really are relying on the government to get it right they want the government to get it right and so I think they do put their trust in there and their they put themselves behind the government more um, I think as we come out of the pandemic, you will see people more willing to go to other political parties, 
um, change who they might vote for because they have that freedom to choose a bit more. They're not relying on the government as much to get us out of a crisis. They're just relying on the government to govern. So I think you might see some changes after out the pandemic. But for now, you know, nationally, it looks pretty much where I expected it to be. Tories getting that poll boost. Um, the SNP are unsurprisingly, you know, very high up. But we've seen what's happened with Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon. And unsurprisingly, that's taken a hit. You've seen the, the polling for uh, independence change as well. Um, and that's gone back down. And, you know, the Welsh poll we've seen today is very good news for Labour, uh, more or less where we want it to be. And a little higher than I expected it to be. There was definitely some nerves there after the 2019 election, but whether or not I think it's going to be a really boring election cycle, I don't know, because obviously I know we're going to talk later about the um, the change to doorstep campaigning. A doorstep election favours the Labour Party. Um, I think we could hopefully see some change, yeah. Thank you for that. And also, I'm glad that you pointed out that we'll be discussing legal change because that was the best news I've received in the last fortnight. Um, let's now turn to the token Lib Dem. Connor, what do you make of this um, polling news, mate? I mean, it, it might be a boring election in Scotland, certainly, because we've always suspected the SNP would hold on to their majority. They're probably still going to hold on to their majority. That's even like during all this, like, you know, all the crisis going on with Alex Salmon, all the drama that's surrounding that, there's still not a seismic enough movement that you would expect to see that in two months' time, the SNP is still going to be so bar- far back that they can't get a majority. Scotland's probably going to have a pretty boring election. It doesn't look like there's going to be a whole lot of change there. However, you know, in Wales, I, I you literally couldn't possibly even begin to tell you what coalition they're going to form there because the current government, you know, is this not going to happen because uh, Labour are probably going to be reduced and Lib Dems might not exist in the in the Welsh Senate. So that coalition could be unviable. It would be extremely interesting to see what the what the Conservatives do because they might be pl- placed in a power making position. Clyde Cymru might be placed in a power making position. Right. He always does that. Yeah, uh, and obviously, in it's easy to fe- forget that just in you know district and county councils across England. Local factors can play any number of roles in shape councils. You know, there were so many dozens of councils where, you know, there's a typical idea of like a, a rural council that is like so far ridiculously Tory or a urban council, which is so far ridiculously Labour that they're never going to change. But the reality is there are lots and lots of councils where either Labour or Tories have got a slight majority or there's just got no overall control. On top of that, you've got lots of mayoral elections up. And you can never, ever go into any local election campaign and predict the outcome. I've seen years where, you know, we've had Vince Cable doing internal memos going, all expecting them to make massive losses, and then we had record gains. So I don't know if that's expectation management or literally nobody knows what's going on, but I have never known it to be possible to predict local elections that accurately. And that, the implications for that nationally might not be that strong, but I think Scotland is the only case of a boring election because you know Scotland is probably going to stay the same as it always was, whereas everywhere else is up for grabs. You know, we're building on top of the very chaotic, you know, Corbyn council elections, which were not great for Labour, but at the same time maybe produce some very uncertain results for the Tories. And it'll be interesting to see what Labour does to build back if they build back in the same place they lost last time, completely new places. I think it'd be quite interesting. 
Just very, very quickly, um, speaking as a Liberal Democrat, what are your hopes like in terms of how they'll do? Because you mentioned, obviously, that they might be a wipeout in Wales. Scotland is, there's always going to be a smaller one, but like, what, what, just very, very quickly, what are like your hopes for it? Oh, God. I mean, Scotland, I think the best you could hope for is like we gain a seat or two. <laughs> then, I mean, there, there are plenty of projections which have us on six seats. And every time I see that, I'm like, yes, one game. We're doing it. Hashtag Lib Dem fight back. Get get the hashtags out. Get your Tim Farron memes. Excellent, uh, excellent. Um, but elsewhere, I have, no, I have no idea. I hope we can cling on to Wales. I'm slightly pessimistic just because all the work that Lib Dems obviously done in the education department, which is what they control in Wales, Labour have been getting a lot of good press off that. And, you know, obviously, it's a Labour-led government. There's good reason for Labour to get credit for what, you know, Lib Dems have been doing in education there, but also it's not great for the Lib Dems that they're not getting credit for the department they run. Nah. Well, let's, well, speaking about Lib Dems running a department, let's run to the other person who runs this podcast. Rob, what are your thoughts, mate? Well, do you know, I kind of tend to agree with everything I've heard, especially from Connor in that Scotland isn't really going to do very much, sadly. I mean, I would, I would absolutely love Scotland to just tear open and, and there would be an interesting election there. But sadly, it does appear that we're leaning towards a nationalist-dominated parliament again with the Greens and the SNP. I think the exciting election will be in Wales, just for the sheer fact, as, as Connor says, I have no idea what could happen. You've got the sort of abolished party who have made their presence known you've got um you've got you know the struggle to see who will get those last couple of seats between them and the Lib Dems and and for some reason the poll that uh you and uh, Josh and Connor spoke about uh UKIP are still a presence and stand a chance with holding a seat in Wales apparently despite the fact that I don't think they currently have any at all in Wales I'm not entirely sure what the situation is there so Wales will be very interesting it's worth noting Connor said that uh, Labour were going to go backwards. I think on the polling that they did when they looked at the seats, it was more or less an exact replica of the current government. There's one Lib Dem and 30 Labour representatives, but that's a very, very early prediction of a poll, which is is a bit out there and certainly very promising for the Labour Party. We've got a whole campaign to go through. Yeah. Locally, again, it's chaos. It, they're always chaos. Local elections are always, without a doubt, chaos because no one really knows where to put the money where to put the activists because you put all the activists in one seat you want to gain that seat and before you know it you've lost three other seats that you thought were really safe but my own example of like how i don't know is is my home sort of constituency of rothwell which at the last election had is now represented by three liberal democrats i have no idea where that's going to go because the seat's safe tory in a uh, constituency wise at westminster there's a, a decent sort of Labour representation there. I, you know, the uh, Labour councillors have been representative of Rothwell up until quite recently. I believe it was them, them who lost the seat to the Lib Dems. But then, of course, the Lib Dems have got a very strong base there, so it could go anywhere. And from yeah. Huddersfield, I mean, it's Huddersfield is going to be the, the whole red wall thing. How far will these seats that have been very diehard Labour for years, how far are they going to swing to the Tories? Are they going to swing to the Tories? Seats like Dalton, for example, which is uh, the, the, the Tories didn't come close to taking, but they have a presence there. Uh, seat like Newsom, where I currently live, that's not changing. That's been green since 1997. That won't, that won't change at all. Yeah. But it may see a decline in the vote share. Um, Almond Brew went 
I think Tory last time. That's one of those which could go anyway again. So it's it's all up in the air. Very. I don't think it's going to be boring outside of Scotland, as Connor says. If I might bring Josh back in, obviously Rob's just kind of talked about the situation in West Yorkshire, specifically kind of around Huddersfield and Leeds. Like, what's the dynamic where you're campaigning and hoping to stand? Like, what's that looking like at the minute? Well, where I live is a Tory stronghold, you know, Hertfordshire, the home counties, it's about as blue as it gets. Yeah. Um, but f- from our perspective, I mean, I live in Hartford, in Hartford and Stortford. Um, you know, the district council is East Hearts, uh, which isn't up for election this year. But you go back before the 2019 district elections, there was one opposition councillor, which was Lib Dem and 49 Tories. In 2019, it went to 40 Tories, 10 opposition, two of which were Labour. Um Bearing in mind that these are in May 2019, at a time where Labour was at the worst ebb of the Brexit debate, our polling was low, Jeremy Corbyn was being received terribly, um, and we ran a good local campaign. We cleared a whole ward, both seats, two Labour councillors, and I think we tripled our number of town councillors across the constituency. Um, Because obviously the county runs across loads of different constituencies, it's slightly different. So there is a reasonable Labour group. The Lib Dems are the largest opposition party, but there's a reasonable Labour-sized group. Um, in my constituency itself, we have no Labour county councillors in my constituency. They're all Tory. Um, but we are reasonably confident that there are areas that we can win. I'm reasonably confident there's areas that the Greens and the Liberal Democrats can win as well, actually. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of that goes to the apathy of our Tory councillors to local issues and to local people. Um, the seat I'm standing in, for example, you know, the Tory councillor doesn't appear to really act on the local issues. Now, the division has our Labour councillors for district in it, the ward they represent. They pick up almost all the casework, almost all the issues that a county council should be dealing with end up going to them and they have to ferry it on to the Tory who is one rung higher. So it's this apathy, I think, that's really starting to switch people off. Um, And I think good local campaigns here and across the country will make a difference. but I think it's going to be a turnout election. It's The turnout in this election is going to be lower than probably ever before in local elections. And that's a low turnout anyway, um, which is why obviously the Labour Party is putting this emphasis on postal voting. Um, we're putting an emphasis on postal voting. I think everyone's putting an emphasis on postal voting because that will really be how you get your voters out. And we know that postal votes tend to favour the Conservatives here and everywhere else. And so challenging that will be really important. But the changes on guidance on campaigning are going to make a huge difference, I think, because, as I said earlier, a doorstep campaign does favour the Labour Party. It doesn't favour the Conservatives. Um, And we have to hope that people will be willing to turn out and willing to campaign and hope that they'll be received reasonably well on the doorstep for it as well. That's, that's quite interesting. So essentially the campaign you're fighting is seems to be kind of absolved of national politics in terms of the trends and what you're seeing, like, Obviously, you mentioned that like you managed to make gains at a time when Corbyn was kind of at his worst in terms of popularity. Also, for those who are listening um, at this point in the podcast, my dog has decided to come into it to play. So from here on out, um, Dexter will obviously be a panellist, but won't contribute anything. Which of the cabinet, shadow cabinet does Dexter think should be sacked? Nicholas um, Thomas Simmons, every day. Nicholas of the week. Sturgeon. Uh, Mike Dexter saying Nicholas. <laughs> anyway, so we'll move on. You know, Dexter um, actually once growled at Margaret Thatcher during an episode of The Crown. Uh, well, I, he must have impeccable taste. Unless he, he just does. doesn't like Gillian, Gillian Anderson, is that her name? I hope Yeah, so. Gillian Anderson. Anyway, thank yeah. God for that. Well, let's, How can let's... you not like Gillian Anderson? George, why is your dog a... T- anyway, we're... <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, so that's that first question done. We'll move on to question two, which concerns the one and the only Matt Hancock. 
He has been the health secretary since this crisis began, and he has been in the limelight for nearly all of it. He did, of course, catch the virus himself, and he has been the man making the decisions. But he has also been found out to be quite corrupt. There have been several PPE contracts that have been found to have been given to suspicious people, people who don't have the expertise that others did who didn't get those contracts. And they, all these people are suspiciously very close to Matt Hancock. So why is this story, which is pretty much exactly what you'd, you'd expect journalists to leap on, a corrupt politician at the very highest level of government at present, as a health secretary during a pandemic, why don't they care? And why do the public not seem to care? So we'll, I think we'll start with George this time and Dexter. No, you don't want to say anything? Okay. Um, so speaking on behalf of both of us, my personal belief why this story just has not broken through is because the public just doesn't care. And that's my most blunt assessment because for a story to care, there needs to be this essence of foul play that everyone else has been going along with, which is why the Dominic Cummings story was so brilliant, because everyone was going through utter misery, not seeing the people they loved, not do, being at work, having financial worries, but this assumption that all of us were in together, and then there was this really rude man who just came along and just didn't care. What this story is, is basically Matt Hancock did something which, uh, right off the bat, not everyone's going to get because it kind of is a bit of a messy thing to explain that PPE contracts were handed out because it's the kind of story which people when they hear it on the news will just turn away from because it's not straightforward and it's not personality driven because it's actually kind of technocratic. What's then basically leveled out is the fact that the story is that these contracts are given out illegally but it's not the fact these these contracts failed at least in the eyes of the public, because this PPE thing occurred about nearly a year ago now, where we had like the stories of the lack of um, you know gloves and stuff for nurses. So it, it's something which isn't relevant to the public conscious right now, and equally, it's about it not being done properly rather than it just not working. So the result is people have just turned shrugged and gone, so what? I mean, Matt Hancock himself is not an evil person. He is a bit of a prophetic weasel, but he's not... He's not Voldemort, is he? He's not someone who people can look and go, oh, he's a shit. He's someone who people mock because he pretended to cry on Good Morning Britain and became a bit of an internet meme for that. It was uh, it was the one that they chose to sacrifice on the new spitting image because, and I quote, he's a virgin. Exactly. So that's the, that's Matt Hancock's role, it would appear, that he's been... Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's he's... all the joke of the group. So, he's, yeah, so my, my, just to recap and be very blunt about it, my personal reasoning why I don't think the story was broken through is because it's messy. It's not directly happening right now, and it's related to something that happened a while ago, which is equally why I think the story surrounding Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond isn't breaking through nearly as much as politicos would like it to be. And it's because it's centred around a guy who, at the end of the day, is someone we mock rather than hate. Mm. Josh, do you agree? Um, well, I think the, the thing about Matt Hancock... I think people don't care. I think the, the mistake would be to say, oh, people don't care about this because Matt Hancock is an amazing health secretary and he's done everything right and people are so appreciative. You know, <laughs> you had him on Good Morning Britain saying, oh, you should be thanking my team. People don't care about this story because they don't care about Matt Hancock. The man is a weak old party balloon. He is so beige, I'm going to call it. He, is, he blends into the background and people don't recognise him as anything other than a man in a chair. And so people don't care. I don't think you have the same attitude to Matt Hancock that you have around Boris Johnson, where people want Boris Johnson to succeed. He is the prime minister and they think, oh, he's making all these tough decisions. With Matt Hancock, people just don't, he's a non-entity 
whilst also being known to the public. And I think people don't just look at him and, and, and have these strong emotions they would around, you know, Boris Johnson or the prime minister or the leader of any party. Um, obviously, as a Labour Party, we want this story to break through. Um, and, you know, to people like us who really do care about this and who view the pandemic from the start to now, from a political point of view, we don't understand why this isn't breaking through. But I think to the average person in this country who is living the pandemic day by day and how it affects their life day by day and who, and, you know, I'm very jealous of them, who don't think about politics every day, um, it's not a thing to them. But I do think, and this will happen when there is an inquiry and there should be a full inquiry into the coronavirus pandemic, that's when this kind of stuff will start to break through properly, when there's a proper appraisal going back over time. And I think that's when these kind of things will really start to break through. I don't think so much it's things coming out here and there. I think it's going to be things mounting up over time. Um, and so while this isn't breaking through in the way we want it to now, I think it will do in the future. But, you know, there's been points about the pandemic where people thought Matt Hancock was going to go. There's been points about the pandemic where people thought Matt Hancock was going to get a promotion after the pandemic. Um, I think, to be honest, Boris Johnson will, um, you know, emulating spitting image. I think Boris Johnson will sacrifice him. I think he'll let Matt Hancock go to get some of the heat off of his own back. Whether that comes through an inquiry or whether that just comes through more mounting stories like this, I don't know. Um, but I think Labour has been pretty clear on this, that the cronyism that we're seeing is horrendous. It's a complete affront to our public services. Um, and I think when we talk about the way these contracts are handed out or how any contract has been handed out, um, you look at the success of the vaccine going out. That's because it's being done by the NHS. And when we talk about the failures of, you know, PPE that didn't work or test and trace that they couldn't get to work, that's because it's being farmed out to these private companies. And I think Labour has been right on this. Um, and to go back to the discussion we had earlier about Keir Starmer as well, I know Keir Starmer's taken a lot of flack for not calling for Matt Hancock to resign. Um, I'm controversially going to say that I actually agree with uh, Keir Starmer on this because the mistake would be Matt Hancock is this unknown, boring sort of, you know, just there person to the public. But if the leader of the opposition then calls for the health secretary to resign mid-pandemic, then make him a kind of martyr in the country. And at that point, the Tories turn around and say, well, look, they don't want this vaccine to succeed. And I think we would then it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that would really be a mistake on our part. I do think, however, when this pandemic over is over, that's the time to start calling for these people to go. That's the time to really start hitting them even harder, because then you can look back, you can sort of appraise it and you can say, well, this is where it started. This is where we are now. We're coming out of that pandemic. Now people need to answer for what happened during it. Right. Cheers. That's very well, very well put. And as you say, there have been stories about him being moved around. Um, there have been rumours that he's going to be replaced by Liz Truss at, uh, at the health. God. There's also been rumours that he's going to be replaced by Michael Gove. Although Michael Gove's also been ticked to either be Home Secretary, Education Secretary. There's a lot of rumours about Michael Gove at the minute. Michael Gove, of course, tips himself to be Prime Minister one day, but we, will, uh, we won't worry about that. Um, but yes, the reason I mentioned Liz Truss is uh, Josh says something about Matt Hancock not being very well known. It's also amongst Tory party members, because they do semi-regular polling on this, and Matt Hancock has very low favourability amongst his own members. 
Liz Truss has extraordinarily high <laughs> approval amongst her own members, so that she could very well go from striking cheese deals with Japan to uh, overseeing the post-COVID recovery. Connor, what do you think, mate? I think a part of it is just that it's the sort of story that you suspect a lot of people got a whiff of a long time ago when it happened. And by the time it's happened now, everyone's got to confirm it, and now it's public. A lot of people sort of in the Westminster, I hate to use the Westminster bubble thing, but you know what I mean, sort of Westminster journalists have sort of gone, yeah, well, I basically suspected Matt Hancock was doing this ages ago. So they've got no, like, in their mind, they've got no incentive to close their industry right now because a lot of them would have suspected. That's the sort of vibe I get from it. It's the sort of scandal that you imagine everyone's heard about Tory ministers doing. Maybe that's just my conception of what Tory ministers are like. Josh made a very good point about how this is going to be more of a thing later on looking at the pandemic in rearview mirror because A, then it's a lot easier for the opposition to attack the government, obviously. And B, it's not... I think it's better then because it's no longer staggered because you could have, say, an inquiry, like maybe they'll rehash all the coronavirus committees and have them evolve into an inquiry into all the things that went wrong during the pandemic, which the government probably try and block setting up, but that might happen. And then this would be an incredibly good platform to sort of collect in one place all the list of the myriad things the government did wrong, in which this would just be one part of it, but it would, you know, it'd be very bad for the government to suddenly have that come out. Equally, in the past, where inquiries have produced massive scathing reports, they have always been massive letdowns after big hypes up and they're always disappointments and lastly on the resignation point with the whole Keir Starmer not calling for Matt Hancock to resign thing I I get what you're saying in regards to it would not necessarily have looked great for Keir Starmer to go out calling for minister's blood but the way it was handled just made it look like Keir Starmer was sticking up for Tory ministers which again was like it fate it, in that way, it fed into a different narrative about Keir Starmer and sort of became the self-fulfilling prophecy of Keir Starmer sticking up for the government again. Now, how much of that is actual Keir Starmer's genuine beliefs might be very little. The position Keir Starmer's in at the moment, he, he's probably not like a great idea to go about defending Tory ministers. Equally, just don't comment at all. You know, don't say, oh, I'm not going to call for design. Just, like, don't talk about the issue because that probably would have been better than the, than the front pages being Keir Starmer sticks up for Matt Hancock. It would have been very hard, though, for the leader of the opposition to just completely ignore the fact that the health secretary is being blatantly corrupt. Well, I hate to say it, Rob, but his his response is that the, the health secretary should remain in place. So it's, it's equally a problematic response. Won't somebody please think of the Tory ministers? Oh, yeah, Paul. Oh, don't Paul, worry, Paul, the Paul, Tory Paul. ministers are thinking of the Tory ministers. They've got themselves quite soft. Oh, the Tory ministers are thinking of the Tory ministers' friends. I think, what nice. made, I think what also made this thing a whole lot worse was this thing that happened, I think it was the day after all this stuff came out, when Matt Hancock went, I think it was on Radio 4, and just said, yeah, I broke law, I'd do it again. And then also the government <laughs> found itself um, basically, oh, well, that ruling's just wrong. We don't agree with that court's findings, so we're just going to ignore it. We- it's um yeah I think I think the messiness of the pandemic is helping them cover it up a fair amount, but um it certainly does raise the question: Did the public care about corruption? Is this it now? Have they given up on? Is corruption a '90s thing where they were angry when John Major had all his sleaze stuff? But but now is does it matter? 
Do we just expect politicians to be corrupt? I think... expect Tories to. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's true. I, I... Of course, Bold, you know, the, the, the guy who runs Liverpool was forced, forced to resign for a similar <laughs> reason, of course. But uh, I think <laughs> Oof. Um, I, I've, no, it wasn't I've, a, no, it wasn't a targeted oof. It's just, um, it's just. That's, no, it's a fair point. Yeah, it's a very it's point. A good I, point. We're very interesting to learn about the coronavirus pandemic, and it just won't mention the health secretary. <laughs> It'll be like you know, the end a... of the, like the end of Game of Thrones, where Tyrion finds out he's just not in it. Well, Rob, could you name the health secretary in two thousand three? They've already been written out of history. It's over for them. <laughs> Oh, okay. well, um, speaking of history, let's talk about something that's making history, shall we? Because we have got, obviously, mayor elections coming up. Now, I'm very keen to cover these because um, the one which I'm most interested in, West Yorkshire, is a historical first for the region, having any kind of metro mayor in charge. But I wanted to just actually ask the panel in terms of these mayor elections, because I think, basically, respective of where we live, each area has kind of got its own little mayor election going on, whether this be someone coming back into power or a uh, dynamic seat. So I want to just go around the panel and ask what... Race are you most invested with? And we'll start with Josh, shall we? Um, so yeah, I'm I don't pay as much attention to this as I should do. Um, obviously we've got the opportunity to elect the first female Metro Mayor, um, and that'd be great for Labour Party, and I hope that we do. Um, the nearest one to me, or the nearest mayor election to me, would be what's happening in London. Um, and I'm, you know, I have family in London. Um, before the pandemic, I spent quite quite a lot of time in London. Um I actually went to an event once that was that was um, where Sadiq Khan was speaking, which was I think Sadiq Khan is absolutely fantastic and a real, a real important sort of light for the Labour Party. I think, and I think he's been fantastic as the Mayor of London. Um, and I think Sean Bailey would be an absolute catastrophe for the city as well. Um, you know, I don't know if you saw recently his new logo, which looks like something oh, stolen God. off a bottle of cleaning detergent. Like, um, he's also apparently running out of money, isn't he? Because he's now begging his supporters for more cash um, mm. in a bunch of frantic emails I've seen dotted around the place. Well, that'll be because he spent most of his money on um, letters that are designed to terrify residents. You know, mm. you've seen the letters on social media that he sent around saying, you know, in big, bold lettering, the Labour Party is going to raise more tax on you um, as if it's an official document. I mean, I, you've seen his comments around, uh, you know, I think he said something recently around single mothers, his comments around oh, home ownership and homelessness. He either doesn't know what he's doing or what he's talking about, or he just doesn't care. Um, thankfully, I don't think he's going to do very well. Um, I'm he's, sure he's listening. Oh, he's, he's listening intently because he has very little else to do, I think. <laughs> um, but I think Sadiq Khan will win comfortably, and, and I'm very happy with that. Um, and actually, I, I'm I'm extremely interested in the Brian for Mayor campaign. I don't know if you've this seen Brian that. Rose. Yeah. Oh my God! I was going to mention him. <laughs> the, just the most bizarre thing I have ever oh, seen. I still don't fully understand it. I'm fanning myself. I, I I absolutely adored his advert because it was the cheesiest, most like. I don't know if you've ever seen Designated Survivor. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of that level of cheese in that like this is this is that is an advert that the main rival to the president in designated survivor would have put out he's in like a bus and he's like it's he's got like he's driving across and then at one point he walks across the top of the bus and it's uh, it's just it's crazy but he uh, apparently is with certain bookies the second favorite to win 
Uh, sorry, the, really? the favourite. He is uh, sorry. He's favourite to come second. Rather, I should uh, I should rephrase that. He is favourite to come second. So with Sean Bailey doing so badly that an American who's been arrested and fined for breaking lockdown law and then is videoed walking across the top of a bus is is on with some book is apparently odds on to do better than Sean Bailey. So there we go. Oh, well, boy. I mean, Sean Bailey's also up against paranoid crank Piers Corbin, who, if in power, would basically oh, just undo every piece of social distancing in force, which, of course, is, can be done. Yeah, London um, is very lucky to have Sadiq Khan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sadiq Khan is, is he's not everyone's cup of tea, and I don't think he's got everything right, but he is very calm, very collected, and he's a leader, and he's a very good one. And mm. uh, and the day that someone like Brian Rose gets in <laughs> with their their scheme to uh, essentially privatise everything and hand it all out to private companies is the gist I got from him. We are in trouble. But before well, this is my this is my this this stuff I love devolved politics. So I'm going to talk too much. I'm going to pass on to Connor. What are you what are you looking forward to? I mean, just on London first. I've over the last few weeks I've become convinced that the Tories are running a deliberately bad campaign in London because I don't, I refuse to believe that one of the most powerful political parties in Europe could do this badly. So I'm convinced they're deliberately running a weak candidate and a terrible campaign in order to justify losing as badly as they know they're going to lose to Sadiq Khan. You know, part of that is just me coping because it's like, I don't want to live in a country <laughs> where the governing party could do this. Uh, Connor, I will just quickly interject and just say um, this is the same party that produced the 2017 general election campaign, so don't put it past them. I mean, you're making good points. I can't get the, can't counter that, you know. We can't rule out that Tories just genuinely are quite bad at this. But <laughs> closer to home where I am, we have uh, a mayor election who is a Tory. We've got James Palmer here, who is... Oh, sorry, I should specify as well. This is the uh, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough mayoral election. Uh, and this is the combined authority yes. sort of thing. Yeah, maybe. And he is horrifically unpopular. <laughs> it, is, it, it really must be. And I'm, I'm, I'm choosing my words very carefully here, which would give you an indication going in of the kind of uh, mayor he is. But I mean, in private eye, they've got their section of rotten, rotten boroughs. And he's become a mainstay of that section for the last few years because he's just. I'm trying not... To, we, we, we openly called Matt Hancock corrupt earlier, you know, and I'm not implying that's what I want to call him. But, but I, I highly doubt <laughs> that the, uh, the mayor of the combined authority of Cambridge Shirt and Peterborough is going to listen into this. So if you wish to call I'm, him... And corrupt, if he is I'm, listening, uh, we're friends with the Labour Society for Lawyers, so just try and sort of libel, I dare you. I mean, if, <laughs> if, if he's listening, James, you just are quite corrupt, aren't you? It's just... It, <laughs> I mean, we, he's gone through so many staff members who are now on quite you know, fat pensions. You know, he comes from, you know, East Cambridgeshire, which is the district I'm in. I stood in uh, a couple of years ago, which is now actually basically it's one seat away from being noble control. So it's very close there now between us and the Tories. It's such a virulently right-wing local council. I don't know many local councils like it where just absolutely refuse to do any like tax raises will go out of its way to cut taxes will go out of its way to cut services beyond what you know the government even asked it to do and it's just he's just so outside like the overton window of normal local politics no not even like socially because i've never heard him like make a social well i heard him rant about the unions once which is very confusing uh, but 
it, it doesn't really talk about like cultural stuff or just that. It just is obsessed with like getting his preferred projects done, like making land deals with people he probably shouldn't be doing land deals with, like trading this for that, getting his own house you know approved when it probably shouldn't have been. And it's just like hideously unpopular because of how like blatantly corrupt he is. Uh, and the the interesting thing about Cambridge and Peterborough is obviously you've got a Labour seat in Cambridge, quite a staunch Labour seat, which is a good base support for Labour, but then most of it is country where there are no Labour voters. There's one seat which is a marginal between Lib Dems and Tories, and there's one seat which is not quite a marginal between Lib Dems and Tories, but like for Lib Dems is a very solid seat where sort of Lib Dems get around 35% of the vote. So it's, you know, it's nothing to be too shabby about. And it, it creates the interesting dynamic of if Labour and the Lib Dems lost the Greens teamed up effectively, they could probably oust him. But I don't know how well that will come together because there's a lot of animosity between Lib Dems and Labour in the city because obviously they're the two biggest parties in Cambridge, so they don't get on with each other for obvious reasons. In the country, a lot of uh, Lib Dems don't like Labour because they view them as vote splitters. A lot of Labour don't like Lib Dems because Lib Dems view them as vote splitters. So... There's a lot of bad blood between it. If they actually could team up, you know, it would have to be a Lib Dem candidate for mayor, which obviously Labour aren't very happy about because Lib Dem is just far and away of the second party county-wide. But if they teamed up, they could probably get a mayor candidate in. But I think there's too much bad blood in, and I suspect... I'm going to be campaigning against this, but I suspect the Tories would hold on to it. Good Lord. You've got... The way that they work... Is it, is it not a second preference thing? Yes, so basically... So the way, surely the second yeah. preference of, of most Labour voters would be the Lib Dem. Okay, here's what we try... Here's exactly how the doorstop goes, Rob. We get to them, they say they're Labour, we go, that is completely fine, we have no problem with you voting Labour, just give your second preference to us because it's going to be us versus the Tories. And then they go, mm, I, I think I'm closer to the Greens, though. And then I have to go, no, please! <laughs> the Greens, that's not how the, the tiered voting works. It's not like close it's not parties. proportional it's, representation. No. Yeah, it, it is. For, it is. I mean, the, this that's the way it should work, obviously, and that would be my preferred system. But the way it actually works, unfortunately, is first vote could be for whoever, but then second vote is between the presumed two candidates. Yeah. Now, Labour, because obviously they're going to do this, claim that they're going to be in the last two anyway, which does complicate things. You know, equally, if Lib Dems were the third party, which we are most of the country, I bet we're probably doing exactly the same. Uh, but if if there was a coordinated effort in the city and in the country between the progressives, then they probably could oust him. But again, because people are slightly misinterpreting what the electoral system is, because there's a lot of bad blood between Labour and the Lib Dems, I highly doubt it's going to happen. Obviously, voters don't really care about bad blood, but you know, if the parties aren't organising, you know, you know, vote for us first round, but please vote, you know, Lib Dem second mm. round, or please vote Labour here so we can vote us there, then that's not going to happen without that organisation. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. The Progressive Alliance falls through around about every sort of three years or so. They they think, should we do Progressive Alliance, and it falls through. Oh, so. the Progressive Alliance is absolutely at its peak midterm when no one's running for anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, shall we turn to you, Rob? What race are you most excited oh, for? I think my. I know the answer. I, as I say, I'm a massive nerd for this sort of stuff. I did my dissertation on, on English devolution and specifically Yorkshire devolution within Yorkshire. 
so this is like my thing. And obviously the West Yorkshire one is the one that I'm, I'm most looking forward to because it's the first time ever that Yorkshire's had the opportunity. Sorry, West Yorkshire's had the opportunity to vote for this. But it's not it's not like I'm only waiting up for the York, the West Yorkshire result because I'm fairly certain at this point Tracy Brabin's won. Yeah. And the reason I say that is is the Tories have chosen uh, someone called, I don't actually know his first name. He's, I called, he's called Councillor Robinson. Councillor Robinson. Uh, his first name isn't Councillor though. It's all very confusing. But he um he's uh, this candidate who the only thing I know about him is my MP back in Rothwell. I say back in Rothwell like I'm still a student. My hometown of Rothwell, their MP is Alex Shelbrook, who has been in place since 2010. When Alex Shelbrook won that seat, Councillor Robbins replaced him on the council. So that is Councillor Robbins' only claim to fame that I know of is that he replaced Alex Shelbrook on Leeds Council. And the fact that that is the pedigree they chose. I think is is baffling to me because West Yorkshire on on paper, and I think you'll agree with me, George, West Yorkshire should go Labour on paper. But then 2019 happened. 2019 happened and Wakefield went Tory. You know, that's that's a voting area in West Yorkshire. The, the sort of city of Wakefield is a voting area and there's no guarantee that's going to vote Labour. There's two areas where I think will go Labour without a doubt are Bradford and Leeds. Massive urban populations. I don't think there's any chance in hell that they vote Tory. The more rural areas on the outside, so for example, Rothwell and Elmit, Morley on the outside sort of Leeds area, and Keithley on the outside of Bradford, I think they they will lean Tory. But as a as a voting area, Bradford and Leeds will vote for the Labour Party. Kirklees, again, I think leans Labour, but it's up in the air. A good Tory candidate who actually put effort in, could have won these areas. They could have won in Wakefield, they could have won in Kirklees, and they could have won in, I think it's Calderdale, the other yes, the other, the other region. I think Calderdale leans Tory anyway, they could have won there. But they've chosen a nobody against a candidate who is a somebody, who is not only known as for being an actress beforehand, and not only known because the way that she entered politics was very dramatic in the horrific aftermath of, of Joe Cox's death, she is a politician in her own right who has been running campaigns and doing things. So to stand at some a nobody against a somebody in an area you could win baffles me and comes back to what Connor was saying about almost deliberately bad decisions in areas. And I don't understand it. I do honestly, well, just as a spoiler alert, I agree with Rob that this seat, the, the West Yorkshire Mason is the one I'm most invested in because obviously I live in Wakefield. Um, what baffles me further about the decision of them to pick this particular Tory candidate is that the candidate's platform and the policies they stand for are the exact same as what Tracy Brabham has been running on. So mm. not only do they have the difficulty of getting this nobody from Harewood basically to be understood, because the only thing that I think he's known for before was during the floods in 2016, he was a bit iffy about working with councillors from neighbouring wards that were Liberal Democrat and Labour in coordinating <laughs> flood relief. So already off the bat, it doesn't come off great. So you've got the difficulty of getting people to understand who he is. And then when you say, well, what does he stand for? You reel off what they say. If someone from Labour has been to that house before, or they've at least had a leaflet from us, mm. they're going to go, well, how are you different from Tracy Brabham? How and, are you? And she's got the, she's got the notoriety. Because George and I worked together for the phone banks for, for Hugh Goldberg. And Tracy Brabham was overwhelmingly the, the, the campaign, the, the, the candidate's name who came up most. People know her. And people in West Yorkshire know her. My granddad, who I don't think will vote Labour, I don't know, he knows her. Admittedly, he knows her from Coronation Street, but he knows her. He knows the name. And that name recognition... Rec oh, you know what I mean? The, the, yes. the, name, the name is out there. 
The I name's think... out there, and people are going to vote for that. And and the Tories have just like when George told me that the Tories didn't find a candidate, I said that's rubbish. How can the Tories not find a candidate in West Yorkshire when they have a chance of being able to win it? And he was like, no, no, they can't find a candidate. And then you told me who the candidate was, and I was like, oh god, wow, what, what, <laughs> what is this? I think for context, just for listeners, because I believe we've discussed this briefly on the podcast before, the Tories in West Yorkshire basically have been trying to find a candidate to run the mayoral election since November. Um, they held their round of selections and it came down to actually the people who were shortlisted in the final round of voting on last weekend. And they weren't happy with it because the two people who appeared was nobody's. I can't even remember the other guy's name, but I believe he's from Bradford. So they decided, we'll just have another round, see what happens. And then they really put the squeeze on for one of their MPs to come over and run. I believe Alex Shelbrook was approached and they refused because they don't want to fight a by-election. Because the seat... battles me, because Rothwell is really safe. <laughs> it might also be the case that I think Imran Khan possibly might have been approached as a new MP for Wakefield. And again, yeah. I don't think that's a by-election. They're very comfortable in No, I can understand Wakefield entirely. But yeah. Rothwell has, is, is, was, up until 2019, I think, the safest Tory seat in West Yorkshire. Mm. Perhaps even, you know, outside of those big northern Yorkshire Tory blocks, it's the safest seat the Tories had in Yorkshire. Right. So the only thing I can therefore think is Alex Shelbrook looks at the job and went, no, I, I really don't want to do that. Which is fair enough, but the yeah. fact that the Tories couldn't find anyone other than this councillor baffles me well, but, there, were all, there were then also rumours after they, they approached and tried to put a squeeze on an MP that they were going to parachute in a big name to rival Tracy and that was the big thing throughout January that we got mm. whispers of which Tracy actually told me herself um, before we did an event together that that's what she'd heard um, but that just never materialised no so I think it's a safe assumption Labour are going to win West Yorkshire in West Yorkshire which means that the, the interesting sort of side of it is who's going to come is going to come third because the Tories are going to come second and stuff like that. But you know, but the, the South Yorkshire as well, they're they're voting. It's again, that's not going to be overwhelmingly interesting because uh, I don't think the reform are going to stand. And if they do stand, they're certainly not going to have the impact that the Brexit Party had at the general election. Um, the Labour Labour Party are going to win. Tories are probably going to come second. It won't be as one-sided as it was last time. It's just about what I can say. Yeah. South Yorkshire, the Yorkshire Party may make a, a, a dart for third place if they're lucky, uh, depending on where they decide to focus their campaigning. I think they'd be very silly to, to campaign, particularly aggressively in West Yorkshire. It doesn't lend itself very nicely to their voting base. And having been to a Yorkshire Party event once as part of my dissertation, I can tell you they're very interesting for Yorkshire Party events. Well, you say, you say interestingly, politely, you... Um... I loathed it, George. Yes. I absolutely loathed it. It was, it was artsy, and uh, if people don't know me, I'm not a big, you know, artsy, sort of fartsy person. I went there to, to hear about what the strategy was for getting people to support a devolution settlement for Yorkshire, and I ended up watching, like, very arty videos of someone dragging a, a rock around on a chain and stuff like that, and uh, myself and my friend Oliver, who went with me, we sort of sat there, like, well, what does this have to do with getting people to vote for Yorkshire? And it's a complete break between that side of the party, which is very, well, I don't want to say liberal, but very, um, very, very upper middle class kind of artsy business owning sort of people. And then the, the vote, the voters who vote for them in places like Barnsley and Doncaster, who aren't like that at all. So there's a very big gap between that. I the, find very odd. The leadership itself is actually comprised of, if I remember correctly, it's the leader is former UKIP and the deputy leader is former Lib Dem. 
the leader is Bob Buxton now, Dr. Bob Buxton. I don't know what his uh, leanings were before, no. but... Um, yeah. But I, I believe now we've come natural to the end of this West Yorkshire discussion, which for the huge chunk of the audience that no doubt doesn't live in West Yorkshire, yeah. fascinating because it's always interesting to get a slice of... Uh, there are other things, of course, going on. The, the Manchester election, I wonder which way that will go. It's, oh, God. <laughs> it's too close to call between Andy Burnham and whichever poor Tory they get to stand against Andy Burnham. I, but, I tried um, to... I tried very hard to look into the West of England mayoral election just so we could talk about it a bit more, but it's such a hard thing to research because they, they uh, basically, if you look yeah. online, all you know is that a Tory got elected in 2017 and then he's been seeking re-election in 2021. The West Midlands, um, the Tories apparently stand a very good chance of being re-elected. That's why I seem to see pick up is in the West Midlands. Andy Street, the current mayor, has quite a reputation in the local area and... Hmm. I seem to remember uh, in a, a recent event, Dr. Andy Mycock from the University of Huddersfield said that he thought Andy Street stood a pretty good chance of, of holding on to uh, his role as the mayor there. Um, well, before, he, we move, before we move on, actually, I was just going to. I, I just want to very quickly ask Josh, um, just because obviously, you, uh, when we started this question off, you said you weren't particularly in the loop when it came to mayoral elections, kind of apart from the London one, which you gave us some mm. expert analysis of, because I'm always keen to hear about London because I don't pay attention to myself, you know. Um, what, what, mm -hmm. What's your take on about hearing the um, events going off in Cambridge and Peterborough Combined Authority in West Yorkshire? Well, I feel bad now because looking at, at Cambridgeshire and the, and the Combined Authority, that's actually probably closer to me than London. So that's the one I should probably know more about. Um you know, I think broadly, you know, looking at the ones we talked about today, I think I have very little desire to get involved in mayoral politics, put it that way. Um, <laughs> you know, but I think this is the, I think you broadly can see this kind of thing as a bridge between the local and the national, if you get what I mean. You know, mm, it's, it's yeah. a bridge between the local councils and Westminster. And I think it's, it's hugely important. Um I think, you know, I think when we talk about Tracy Brabin, I'm pretty certain that Tracy's going to win. I really hope that she does. I think she's absolutely fantastic. You know, Andy Burnham, no doubt in my mind at all. But I'm very keen to see what happens. And I think when you look at some of these more northern seats where Labour's vote did collapse in 2019, I think that is where we're going to see the challenge of the difference under Keir Starmer's leadership. Is where we're going to see the challenge about how many voters that we really have won back from the Tories. Um, and I think actually... You know, you can see these local mayoral and, you know, parliament elections as a real test of Keir Starmer's leadership, his first proper test. But it's really going to be in those key areas that I think will, will it will be a real litmus test of how well he's performing. And so I'll be watching them a lot more closely now, I think, as well. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yes, yes. So after all that discussion about Metro mayors, we're going to go something a bit more basic. We're going to talk about in-person campaigning because it's back. Two weeks ago, uh, we spoke about the fact that it was gone. And George was, of course, heartbroken by this fact that the in-person campaigning was under threat. But the legal advice has come out and it says that on March the 8th, leafleting and door knocking will be allowed to carry on. So the question is, what do the panel make of it? And is this, is this first of all, a smart decision? Do we, do we think that this is going to cause any problems with the virus? Or, and are smaller parties now within a chance? Or find back, and we'll start with uh, we'll start with Josh. Um, well, I'm obviously happy that doorstep campaign is back, um, and I think it's the right decision from the government. I think we're in the right position with the vaccine rolling out um, to reinstate doorstep campaigning. I also think it's right um, 
that the Labour Party, and I'm hoping this that when the Labour Party issues its guidance, they will encourage people not to go out and properly campaign till the 29th when we are out of lockdown. I think we have to be very careful here because obviously what the government is saying is that from March 8th, you can go out, but keep numbers to a minimum from March 29th when we're coming out of lockdown um, and you can do up to six people outside, you can go in groups. I think if you start canvassing from March the 8th, you are going to get a backlash from people on the doorstep. Um, and that's my first concern, really. I think from March 29th, obviously, it's slightly different, but you can leaflet from March the 8th. And I think that's the key thing, because there was a lot of people saying that when the government released guidance, saying you'd have to do paid delivery for leaflets, you know, previously, well, that only favours one party. And it's not Labour and it's not the Greens and it's not the Lib Dems. Um, so the fact that we can now deliver leaflets, that saves parties everywhere money, makes it more democratic, I think. Um, you know, as I said earlier, a doorstep campaign favours the Labour Party. And so I think this is a real positive for us. I think although we're behind in the polls at the moment, it does give local CLPs a chance to really boost their campaigns. And I think the key thing will be getting out the vote on Election Day, which is something that Labour activists up and down the country are really, really good at and something that will give us a big boost come polling day on, on uh, May the 6th. I think in terms of smaller parties, yes, it gives smaller parties a boost as well because they are as driven by their members as the Labour Party is. Um, I think in key local election seats, in key councils, it's going to make a real difference. Um, and I think, you know, thank God that it's it's coming nearer to the summer and not during the winter, because the last time I was out on the doorstep was late 2019. And um, I have a lot of memories of getting home from campaigning and warming my feet in front of a radiator. You know, it was that kind of a freezing cold campaign. You remember the rain on election day and... So we're hoping that it's going to be sunnier when we're out campaigning and we're hoping that it's going to be better weather. Um, but I think it's the right decision. And I felt very strongly that because it is a democratic process, that this, at the very least, leafleting by volunteers should always have been classed as essential. Um, and I think it, the fact that the guidance has been updated is a very good thing. And hopefully what we will see is members who are willing to go out and campaign because I think there might be an apprehension um, and an understandable one as well. So I think we've got to be careful in how we campaign. I think it's always got to be COVID secure. I'm keen to see what the government, uh, what the guidance sorry, is from the Labour Party. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting back out and speaking to residents properly, to be honest. That's my favourite thing about being involved in my local Labour Party. That's why I'm keen to stand as a candidate because I... I want to hear from local people beyond just phone canvassing. I want to see and speak to people in real life and, you know, do it as safely as possible. That's the key thing for me, making sure that people on the doorstep feel comfortable in terms of volunteers and in terms of people that you're speaking to as well, because I think that's the most important thing. Right. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Connor, what do you think? I mean, I should probably start by admitting the terrible truth that I'm a lapsed canvasser and I haven't campaigned really in any form since the 2019 general election, which is over a year ago now, which is for a mix of not been a whole lot to campaign about, <laughs> obviously since then, because not long after that, uh, the coronavirus started, uh, but also just like profound mythness with the entire uh, political setup. So I just haven't been campaigning much. I, you know, just on the whole thing, I, I spoke about this last time, but you can't go around holding elections without campaigning. You know, if it's too dangerous to campaign, it's too dangerous to hold elections. That's just that is just a fact. Because if anything, you know, elections are going to involve concentrating people a hell of a lot more than just campaigning is. 
You know, I'm fully aware that like, of the risk of having one person go from door to door to door to door. But all the parties I've seen campaigning have like explicitly throughout the entire pandemic been like, do not campaign unless you're going to take this safety precaution, this safety precaution, this safety precaution. Because you know, nobody wants to be a nobody wants to be the person like give someone Corona, but also nobody wants like to have that politically backlash at them. And I think Josh is completely right to talk about like people aren't going to want to go door knocking immediately. You know, I, frankly, I don't think it would be a good idea for anyone to door knock at least until April, just because you're going to get so many people just like don't don't be at my door. I don't want to do this. Why? You know, but you're going to get a lot of people, maybe older people, that are like sorry, I can't I can't hear you through the mask. Sorry, is there anything you can do? So that's going to complicate things even more. You know, you might get some hard of hearing people that really do need sort of lip readings to help. It's just creates so many complications that really the leafleting side of it, I think, is the more impactful thing because, you know, door-to-door, face-to-face canvassing is not going to be that effective for a while. So it's going to have to be leafleting. Mm. Obviously, that helps Labour, that helps Lib Dems, that helps all the smaller parties that aren't the Tories. Who knows? I am sceptical of the government's time frame, And I've been reluctant to just, like say this because obviously everyone's feeling a bit hopeful right now. I don't want to be the negative Nancy, but I'm incredibly sceptical. George is shaking his head because no one wants the government to be wrong on this, but I'm, I I am incredibly, incredibly, incredibly cynical of the idea that the government's like plan to slowly phase out of lockdown is going to go off swimmingly. So I'm fully prepared in like the middle of April, the government to go, so we're having to put in a whole bunch of new measures again, and this could all change. So I'm not, I'm, I'm holding out because, you know, March 8th is two weeks away. We'll see, well, a bit over a week now, really. But we'll see what happens on March 8th. But I am not willing to place my bet on anything happening until the day it happens. We are we are in a situation at the moment where the, the government is ahead of schedule on the vaccination programme. People our age will be getting them around about mid-May from onwards. And we've learned that the Oxford vaccine is extremely good at preventing hospitalizations better than the Pfizer one and also both of those vaccines the two main vaccines we use in this country have shown there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they reduce transmissions I appreciate what you're saying Connor and all I'm saying on the flip side is is just be aware that for anyone who does listen to this is that the vaccine is working and if you do go out on the doorstep you are likely to encounter people who have been vaccinated and you yourself may have been vaccinated. So, you know, let's just be aware that it was still quite a lot of fear there, but people are going to be safe in theory because of this vaccine. And there's a lot of evidence to back that up. So let's just be, a, you know, I, I completely respect what you're saying in that we are, you know, it's too early to, to throw open the doors and go wild. But the, the, the advice that's been given out you know, there will still be distancing between people talking on the doorstep and the vaccine lowers transmission rates. I don't think the election is going to cause a massive spike in the cases. That's just my mm. take, but I think based on the evidence... Yeah, I seen, think it's perfectly fair. I'm just saying that I, I'm sceptical of this particular government's timeline. I think, objectively, things are going very well with, like, dealing with coronavirus. I'm just sceptical that the government could deliver as swift a exit from lockdown as they are predicting. Well, fingers crossed that we uh, we do get some semblance of life. Oh, yeah, God, back let's all hope I'm wrong. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. George, please, what do you think? I'll give it very brief. Um, I am elated that we've got this legal advice because I really didn't like phone banking. I still don't. I'll do it. I'm just 
the thing is, you don't, it's, it's very different from when you knock on the door, because when you phone mm. bank, it's so much more of an intrusion, because you're mostly bringing landline or mobile numbers, and people act really suspiciously when they don't know the number and they don't know the person. However, when you door knock and you're there, there is so much more of a chance to actually spark a human connection with someone, and that is what I'm really excited about. I've, it sounds really sad, I've been doing the Couch to 5k over the last um, month, two months, and... I'm really excited because I'm now in decent enough shape that uh, I'm going to be able to spend my weekends going and door knocking. And that gives me such hope because it, the, basically spring elections are always fun because it's getting lighter in the evening. You can go door knocking up until about half seven. You tend to go out with people who you've not seen outside of CLP meetings. And generally, even just from the perspective of party management, it is such a morale booster because there's people who you spent the last year and a half arguing with over who should lead the party, who should be in charge of the NEC, what should the rules be? You're then going out with them, and all of you are united there in the same purpose, which is to get this person who you all know elected. And I really think that the in-person campaigning and that kind of camaraderie is really going to do wonders for the party. Um, just to speak from purely a party perspective. And I think actually for local parties as well, it's going to be what they needed to hear, because little local independent organisations, which, as I highlighted last time, did not have access to an extensive phone banking operation, they're going to be thrilled, because they can just go out and door knock. They can just go out, and that... That makes democracy a bit healthier in my eyes. And I've been quite concise about this, but I just think it's a brilliant thing. And um, I'm hoping to God Connor's wrong because if they turn around and tell me that I can only phone bank, I might actually pull up my hair. Phone banking is is certainly an experience. I did meet, when uh, when I was doing it with you, George, I did meet a lovely old woman who spoke to me about her experience during the, the, uh, the minor strikes back in the 80s. She was lovely. And there were also a couple of very prickly people who, um, as you say, weren't keen to have been phoned on their landline. Yes, although so, I, I think now we have naturally come to the end of question four, which is why we yep. are going to round off this podcast section with a repeat of the hit segment, Politician or Partridge? We've not been caught in junctions yet, so thank God. Now, Josh is new to this, but I'm sure this is from a fortnight ago. Remember, what I've got in front of me are two statements from politicians. Uh, one is an Alan Partridge quote, one is from a current politician. I just need a pal to tell me who's Partridge, who's a politician. Now, what we've done this week is, because of the fact we mentioned our oh-so-corrupt health secretary, I thought it'd be fun to give him a spin on this, you know? So I've got here a Matt Hancock quote, and I've also got a Partridge quote. I'm going to read them out, and I just need you to tell me who's who. And the theme of this week is sport. We're going to basically... I've got a Partridge quote and a Hancock quote talking about something they've taken up a hobby. This is statement one. It all stemmed from someone telling me I'd feel better if I exercised. They suggested jogging. But what appealed to me about pony trekking is that basically you're in charge of a vehicle. Also, horses don't complain. Clambering upon my horse, treacle, really just is what the doctor ordered. So that's statement one, and this is statement two. I'd seen it on YouTube, and it's amazing. But you never think to get involved, because I can't do those sorts of flips. But it's great fun and good exercise, and you learn about your body and the environment you live in. Anybody can do parkouring. <laughs> I think I know this one, actually, oh, which God. is astounding because i know nothing about sport and nothing about alan partridge okay so um let's go around the panel so statement one on pony trekking who do you reckon that is josh i think that's alan partridge rob i agree i i think that's alan partridge Connor? i think the youtube setting is i i could i'm completely wrong i think the youtube is what makes it difficult because the percentage of alan partridge material that is post youtube is very small 
but the percentage of the Hancock material that's post YouTube is very big. So YouTube rose in 2010, I think it's fair to say, and since then we've had two Alan Partridge books, two shows on Sky Atlantic, and then a podcast series, and then this time of Alan Partridge on BBC. So Uh, I I can see Matt Hancock trying to do parkour. I can't see him on the back of a horse. Do you know the episode of The Office, the US Office, where the characters get into parkour for the first five minutes of an episode? Because that is exactly what Matt Hancock has done in his life. I guarantee you that man tried parkour, sprained an ankle, and spent two weeks in bed. Guarantee you that's (laughs) happened. All right. I'm going to give the answer, and I'm pleased to say everyone has got it right. Matt Hancock (laughs) did indeed have a parkouring phase in 2016. Oh, wow. The photos are absolutely amazing. (laughs) Yes, this is. I think this is about the same time that he was culture secretary as well when he built that app, which he then did shut up about. Everyone remembers the Matt Hancock app. And yes, indeed, Alan Partridge did take up pony trekking after he drove to Dundee in his bare feet going on a Toblerone binge. Um, he also did it against the expressed advice of Bill Oddie, um, but pressed on with it anyway. What a hero. I know. Uh, it's amazing, really. I've kind of, I've gone through and I've got a bank of different um, quotes we're going to go through for the next few weeks, and it's astounding what politicians' Instagrams can give you. But um, with that um, fun now done, I believe that then comes to the end of the podcast. Uh, now, Josh, since you're new to the podcast, would you want to tell people where people can find you? Like, what are your social media handles? Oh, uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, all under the username josh Four. St Andrews, and that's the number four um, in 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 um, for my local election campaign. So feel free to find me, give me a follow. Um, I'll promise I'll try to be interesting. Excellent <laughs> stuff. And as usual, the usual suspects handles will be available in the description below. Josh, thank you for coming on. It's been amazing to have you contribute yeah, towards the podcast. Thanks and, for having me on. Ah, it's not a bother. And thank you for listening at home. Goodbye. <laughs>